0: Welcome to Legalese. At LegalEase, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner.
1: Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking.
0: No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk.
1: We hope you enjoy the show.
0: Hi, this is Amina Keshin kamel and you're listening to Legal Ease. Episode 7 will be introduced by my co-host, Herb Payne.
2: And this is Herb Payne. The concept and practice of the privatization of functions that government would otherwise perform has been at the center of a decades-long public debate about the appropriate and distinctive roles of the public and private sectors. The case for outsourcing traditional governmental functions is that private corporations can perform tasks ranging from transportation to military defense cheaper and at higher levels of quality. On the other hand, opponents of privatization, primarily on the liberal end of the political spectrum, challenge that premise and voice deeper concern about the ethics and propriety of relegating key human service functions to enterprises that are driven by profit. Among these functions is the incarceration of offenders of the law. In fact, private prisons are big business in America, and have been for a long time. Indeed, as far back as the post-Civil War era, and not for the noblest of reasons. In his seminal work on the Jim Crow era, Worse Than Slavery, historian David Oshinsky chronicled the stories of convicts, primarily black males, who had been sentenced to serve time for minor infractions in Mississippi's Parchman State Penitentiary, essentially a labor camp where they suffered brutality and degradation and their services were sold or leased to local planters. Their convictions were the results of the so-called pig laws and black codes that were enacted in southern states in 1865 and 1866 to codify the notion that slaves and freedmen were part of an inferior race. Under these laws, blacks were arrested for such crimes as disrespecting white women, stealing food to feed their families, vagrancy, and even being unemployed. It is important to note that while the intent of these practices was to perpetrate another form of slavery, there was an economic motive as well to exploit cheap labor. Fast forward 150 years, and today's criminal justice system retains the attributes of a system based on incarcerating and exploiting marginalized communities, principally Black and Latino. The privatization of prisons involves major constitutional issues that are the focus of this interview today. We're joined by John Dacey, the founder and executive director of Abolish Private Prisons and Staff Attorney Robert Craig. You can find their biographies on our website at LegalEasePodcast.com. Welcome.
0: Welcome John and Robert. So John, let's start with you today. Tell us a bit about your background and how you became involved with and passionate about this issue.
3: So I've been practicing law for 42 years in Phoenix in the metropolitan area. <clears throat> My first 12 years I spent it at legal aid organizations and some of that work included representing people incarcerated in the county jails um, with regard to the deplorable conditions they experienced. I've been in private practice for the last 28 years up until uh, August of this year and About seven, eight years ago, I was asked to help the federal district court develop a mediation program for uh, lawsuits filed by inmates who were unrepresented. They were filing their own lawsuits in federal court over things like medical care and safety and religious freedom and special diets, and it had been some 30 years since I'd looked at prison and jail issues. So I started to read the headlines around the country to refresh and learn what the new hot button topics were. And that's when I first came across the phrase for-profit prison. I'd never heard of private prisons until that moment. And I knew right then and there I wanted to do something about it. My first reaction was, wait a minute, This is the government's responsibility. This this shouldn't be in the marketplace. The more I read about prison privatization, the more alarmed I got, and was just convinced this was simply a modern form of slavery. We were slipping backwards. And so um, I decided, uh, together with others, to do something about it. That's what led to creating Abolish Private Prisons which was founded in 2015 as an Arizona nonprofit corporation and we're also tax-exempt as a 501c3.
0: Wonderful. And Robert, how about you? Please give us your background and your role with Abolish Private Prisons.
1: So first of all, thanks for having us. Uh, We always love to get a chance to talk about this project. I graduated law school in 2012 and I clerked for a few years and I had finished my last clerkship and had some time before I was going to take the bar exam and John reached out to me and asked if I could do some volunteer work for him on this topic. And so I did a couple months of volunteering and uh, he offered me this position that I'm currently serving in now as a staff attorney. I finished the bar exam and got to work full-time as of just about a year ago. Wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you.
2: Great. And John, you mentioned uh, the creation of this new nonprofit organization, Abolish Private Prisons. Can you tell us more about it?
3: What is its mission? What's the vision to which you aspire ultimately? So, we picked the name Abolish Private Prisons quite deliberately We chose the verb abolish in order to make it absolutely clear what our mission is, which is to abolish private prisons throughout the United States and its territories, and to also harken back to the abolition movement before the Civil War. So the mission is to challenge the constitutionality of prison privatization by federal court litigation, and To make clear, why are we doing this? Number one, no one else is doing this. That's one reason. Number two, a small number of people can do something about this. But most importantly, this is a core... Incarcerating people, the most fundamental deprivation of liberty is a core government responsibility. And once it becomes a privatized, for-profit activity, It embeds perverse financial incentives into our criminal justice system that call not just the integrity but the legitimacy of our justice system into question and turns the human beings in these facilities, the private prison facilities, into inventory, units of profit on corporate balance sheets. So our mission is to get this issue before the United States Supreme Court, to have that court declare, as in Brown versus Board of Education as a model, that prison privatization violates the United States Constitution and must be abolished throughout the land. That's our mission. We also have interest in broader areas of criminal justice reform. But job one is challenging the constitutionality of prison privatization.
2: So your vision does extend beyond the abolition of the prisons, opposing success in the litigation. It goes into areas related to mass incarceration, et cetera. Yes. Okay.
3: And and to the interests of people that are in the communities but have felony records and and have all kinds of civil rights deprivation.
2: Before we get into some of the legality, <coughs> uh, the legal issues. I had alluded earlier to David Oshinsky's book, but could you speak a bit more about the story, if you will, behind private prisons? How long have they existed? Who uses them?
3: So currently, the prison privatization model was reborn in the United States around 1980. So during the Reagan administration, you had this push toward the privatization of governmental functions. And it's an industry that has grown under every president since since 1980. Prison privatization began with some of the states and the majority of states use private prisons. It expanded to federal agencies during the Clinton administration. There are four federal agencies that use private prisons three federal agencies placing people in private prisons in Arizona in particular. There are also local governments. So, for example, in in the summer of 2017, the city of Mesa decided to start privatizing some of its jail functions, contracting with CoreCivic. So, I say rebirth because... Before the Civil War, in particular, there were and during colonial times, there were some uses of of privately owned jails, but but it's it's the rebirth of this industry that we want to challenge.
2: And just for the record, Core Civic is the new name for the Corrections Corporation of America, correct?
3: Correct. That's a a publicly traded. Uh, corporation, one of two uh, private prisons that are traded on the New York Stock Exchange.
0: That's good to know. So why focus, and, and you've addressed this, but if there's anything you know left to say about why focus on private prisons, given the rest of the problems related to mass incarceration?
3: Let me, if you don't mind, I'd like to have Rob uh, jump into the conversation, but if I could define one term for your listeners going forward, and that is the issue of what is a private prison. What we mean by that is the circumstance where government turns over total operational control of a jail or prison to a private entity. So what we're not talking about are the many other large financial interests that make profits off of the incarceration of people in public or private facilities. Food vendors, medical care providers, mental health providers, communications, transportation, construction, linens, all sorts of other vendors. That is not what we're talking about. Maybe that's for a later day. But right now we're just focused on the circumstance of a private vendor being delegated Total operational control and total control of a person's life while they are in the prison
1: yeah, there's a few reasons why we're focusing on private prisons given the larger problem of mass incarceration. One is that it stood out as being unconstitutional. You know, mass incarceration generally is a large problem. Uh, there's several avenues to deal with it. Our research at this point doesn't indicate that mass incarceration by itself violates the constitution. But when we started looking into it, it seemed like the private prisons really did for multiple reasons. Uh, The other thing is there's a fundamental unfairness that comes along with private prisons that's really clear when you start to understand what the profit incentive is. When the same company has incentive to keep all of their beds full for longer, and those are the people that are overseeing and determining the conditions that the prisoners are living in, Anybody that sees that can see the unfairness. And one of the bedrock principles of our legal system is supposed to be its fairness. You know, When we picture justice, when you see uh, statues and paintings, she's often uh, blind. And that's because justice is supposed to be blind and fair for everybody. And when you have a corporation who has an interest in keeping as many people in prison as possible, their thumb is going to be on the scale at every part of the legal process. From before laws get made in the lobbying process, uh, in the judging process, and and in the incarceration process when they get to determine what facilities are available, what uh, rehabilitation programs are available, what job training is available, how many guards are uh, responsible for keeping prisoners safe. So at all of those steps, you see this unfairness built into the system when there's a for-profit motive for these Uh, corporations. And so we thought that if you could address the private prison part of mass incarceration, that was something that a small group of motivated individuals could tackle. In the same model as Brown Birth Supportive Education, it's an accomplishable goal that could have a measurable effect on a much larger problem.
2: If I could raise one point, my understanding is that Notwithstanding the fact that there is major bipartisan legislation today around criminal justice reform and that uh, the corporation the core civic has been supportive of that, that there is also a move towards privatization of detention centers for the immigrants right now at the border that's all part of your narrative i assume
3: it is okay so you know with regard to the support of the private prison industry at least the two giants of the first step legislation that received bipartisan support and president trump's signature recently what choice did those corporate giants have other than to support that Um, but as you know the current administration is supporting privatization generally and and in the context of incarceration and also in detaining even greater numbers multiples of the current numbers of immigrant detainees so to put it in context a little less than 10 percent of all prisoners are in private prisons so most prisoners are still in public facilities although there has been a huge growth in the numbers and percentages of people that are in privates. But in the c- context of immigration detention, it's two-thirds to three-quarters of immigrant detainees that are in private detention facilities, owned by these same companies.
2: So I segued, uh, used that question as a segue to a discussion that We had earlier our likening of the practice of prison privatization to slavery, making inmates commodities. Um, So let's talk a little bit in greater detail about why you believe the practice is unconstitutional and how crime and punishment should be viewed by government officials,
1: two parts.
3: So Robbie and I can play off of one another with this one.
1: Yeah, sure. There's multiple... constitutional provisions that the practice of private prisons violates. The first and uh, one that stands out to me in particular is the non-delegation doctrine. And what that basically says that there's certain powers that branches of the government cannot delegate to other branches of government and to private parties outside of the government. So for example, a topic that most lawyers are familiar with is agency law and how congress has to be very specific when it delegates power to the executive branch and they have to tell the executive branch with some specificity what kinds of authority that the executive branch has otherwise that lets the executive branch pass laws and so the non-delegation doctrine says congress has to be the one that passes laws the executive branch is the one that enforces those laws. As applied to private prisons, we say that the executive branch is the only entity in the United States that has the authority to incarcerate people. So no matter how you draw up a system, if it's not the executive branch that's incarcerating people, then they have delegated that non-delegable power in a way that violates the Constitution. So whether they give that power to uh, a nonprofit corporation, or a for-profit corporation, um, or another governmental entity, then non-delegation problems arise. It's
3: it's part of a bigger issue, too. So the whole issue of where is the line as to what the government can privatize versus what it can't. You know, we have an enormous administrative state where no one would question the ability of government to accept bids to build a highway or to manage a hospital. But there might be questions about whether we could turn over our public elections to a private company that might have particular political affiliations. Can we privatize the entire United States Army? We clearly use mercenaries and have since the Revolutionary War, but there's a wonderful book on the topic entitled Outsourcing Sovereignty, where the writer, a new NYU Law School professor, um, questions the wisdom of of what we are outsourcing in the areas of of national defense and, and gathering of national intelligence. So it's part of a bigger issue and Where we come down here is that when you're talking about a most fundamental deprivation of a person's individual liberty, that's one place to draw the line. We're not suggesting the case law is clearly in our corner here. We have to go back to the New Deal era to start looking at some of the Supreme Court cases where delegations of governmental power were struck down by a conservative Supreme Court. Um, But but there has been discussion by some justices in more
1: recent opinions,
3: very recent opinions, that suggest this is a doctrine that should not be discarded. So that's one thing.
1: And that shouldn't be surprising because we've seen recently the growth of privatization, as you mentioned in the intro. Not only is it in prisons, but uh, Railways, and that's the Amtrak case that John was talking about that has generated a lot of interest in what non-delegation looks like in the modern era. But as the government turns over more and more and more of its power and its functions, these questions are going to become more and more relevant.
3: There's more to the constitutional question as well. Mm -hmm. So there's the whole issue of financial bias. So we know if we go back to the 1920s, I think it is, the case of Toomey versus Ohio, where the justice of the peace who levied fines um, had his salary dependent on the fines collected, and the Supreme Court said, no, we, that's an impermissible financial bias. Well, in this circumstance, you have a private jailer, and in our view, the status of the jailer is what matters. You have a private jailer with a financial interest In never releasing an inmate and if the inmate is released in hoping that the inmate returns so both of those things a long stay in prison and high rates of recidivism are societal ills individual failures that we should want to remedy but instead those are things that increase the profits of the private jailers And make no mistake, what the private jailer does while a person is in its custody affects when and how the person comes out of prison. Most people in prisons are going to return to their communities. We should want their return to be as successful as possible. Private prisons write incident reports that affect early release time credit, eligibility for parole, and they also are delegated the use of force, including deadly force by the government as part of the punishment function of government. So in our view, not only do we have this impermissible financial bias that that violates due process safeguards, But to go back to Robbie's point on non-delegation, we are delegating to a private entity the power to do these things. That in our view, only the government should have the responsibility and the actual implementation of.
1: And at, at the core of the due process clause, and particularly procedural due process, the question is, did the person receive an impartial adjudicator? Or was the adjudicator so biased that he was either actually impartial or that a reasonable person looking at the situation would see the bias. And that goes back to the core understanding of the legal process as being fair. And if, if people at large don't see the process as fair, the foundation of a legal system entirely starts to crumble. So when you look at the facts, the question is going to be, is the adjudication of the prisoner when... Uh, a guard is deciding whether or not to write an incident report or whether or not to put the person into solitary confinement. Was he neutral when he made that decision? Or was the back of his mind this thought of, can we keep him here longer? Can we make sure he comes back? Is my job tied to the fact that we're going to have enough prisoners to justify paying me?
0: So John and Robert, you mentioned at length about the non-delegation doctrine. So I'm wondering now, is there any way to run private prisons that are constitutional?
3: In our view, no. And, and, and it goes to a couple of things we haven't talked about yet with regard to the Constitution. So the first issue is the non-delegation um, theory that, that Robbie has, has talked about in, in some detail. That doesn't go away. Um, if you change the terms of the contract. It's it's still a core government responsibility. But the second thing is the treatment of the person in the prison. That person is entitled to be treated with dignity throughout, not as a unit of profit for a corporation. So let's just think about what happens when a person from Vermont or Hawaii or Alaska um, is assigned to a private prison in Arizona because those states don't want the responsibility. They're gonna pay for it, but they're gonna place the person in Arizona. More often than not, we're talking about people of color being shackled, transported to a private prison in Florence or Eloy in Arizona so that a corporation can make a profit. The corporation gets the people in its facilities through an auction, if you will, public procurement. That's how we used to sell slaves too. And, and oh, by the way, I mentioned earlier the GEO Group and CoreCivic Their stock is traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And and so when the Obama administration in August of 2016 announced it would no longer use private prisons through the Federal Bureau of Prisons, we saw the stock shares of those corporations tumble. I believe some shareholders of one of those corporations sued management over that circumstance And then we had the election of 2016, when President Trump was elected and stock shares have soared more than 100% since that election. Well, what is behind the stock values? It's people in prisons, private prisons. So the incentives are perverse. That doesn't go away because we change the terms of a contract. And so, no, we don't think there is a circumstance. where turning over the function of incarceration and punishment to a private contractor meets constitutional muster.
1: And as John describes that, it, it becomes crystal clear one of the other constitutional problems that we have with this is the 13th Amendment, which prohibits slavery. And John just did a great job describing how a modern-day private prison treats people as slaves. But what's also important is to track the history of what a black American experience would have been like from the time of slavery till the time that we are today. And it's a history of unfreedom. You have uh, from the pre-colonial era when slaves were first being traded up until emancipation. And in some people's minds, that ended slavery. But really what came right after that as you described earlier, Herb, was the black codes, where black men primarily were imprisoned for vagrancy laws for being unemployed, and they were sent through the convict policing system to work for other people. Shortly after that, into the 20th century, you have the Jim Crow laws, which again restricted all of black Americans' rights and kept them as second class citizens. And that transitions immediately after the Civil Rights era of the 1960s into the War on Drugs of the 1970s and the private prison growth of the 1980s, as John mentioned earlier. So it's not that private prisons are so far away from slavery, even in a time sense. There's a direct line between chattel slavery of the 18th century and modern private prisons. And that's what the 13th Amendment argument goes to. I would
3: want to add one thing to what Rob just said, which is The other constant theme in everything that Rob just said is that the conduct was sanctioned by government, that it was not only authorized by government, but carried out by government. So the complaint is not directly with the private prison corporations. It's with government and our governmental leaders. Slavery existed in colonial times. It was recognized in the original U.S. Constitution. It was protected in the Dred Scott decision, which, by the way, I've come across hardly any lawyers that have ever read that entire decision, no matter what their practice area. That decision is... I don't know what is the right adjective for it. It is thoroughly researched. It is, it is quite a cataloging of how deeply rooted slavery was in every colony in this country. And, and after that, as, as Robbie mentioned, the Jim Crow laws came from government. The Black Codes came from government. The Supreme Court decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, that protected the Jim Crow laws was the US Supreme Court. And what we have now are federal and state laws that authorize, if not require, the use of private prisons. And and those contracts are government contracts that are public record, but it is all the actions of government. You bet the private prison industry spends a lot of money on lobbyists to make sure they get those contracts and get more of them. But it is government that is going to be the target of our lawsuits.
2: John, I it came to my attention recently, and I, I must confess to having been shocked by the degree to which privatization has now insinuated itself into the management of immigration detention centers. I wish you could speak about that and its implications.
3: Let me, uh, if I could, first talk about the issue of the 13th Amendment and the prohibition on slavery and how it might apply. So the 13th Amendment says, if I'm recalling correctly, slavery and involuntary servitude, comma, except as punishment for crime following conviction, comma, is prohibited in the United States and its territories. The issue being, does the Punishment Clause modify involuntary servitude only or slavery and involuntary servitude? Is there an exception to the prohibition on slavery? Our view is there is no exception. I think it's it's useful to note that in Plessy versus Ferguson, which where the Supreme Court said, separate but equal is the law of the land. The dissent was written by Justice Harlan, who said, that's nonsense. There was another case decided within a year of Plessy called Robertson versus Baldwin. That was a 13th Amendment case, and Harlan again found himself in the dissent, but he wrote at that time. There's no exception for slavery. The Punishment Clause only modifies involuntary servitude. And Harlan's thinking became the law ultimately in Brown versus Board of Education. Of course, we're hoping his thinking is true today when it comes to interpretation of the 13th Amendment. So our view is there is no prohibition and that it would offend current standards of decency, which is a core consideration of the Eighth Amendment to say that today slavery would be permitted in any circumstance.
1: But what's already clear is that as applied to immigration detainees, there is no except as punishment for a crime exception because case law has determined for some time now that immigration detention is a civil matter, not a criminal matter. And so any punishment that arises as a result of immigration detention, cannot be punishment. So the 13th Amendment, if we are successful in convincing a court that immigration detention is slavery, then there is no except as punishment for a crime exception. So the 13th Amendment could wipe out that practice however you read the punishment clause.
2: So to use your metaphor earlier, I mean, I was shocked by the degree to which this concept had now penetrated or bled into something like immigration detention, the practice of privatization is metastasizing.
3: That's exactly what's happening. And the prison corporations, as I mentioned, are creating wholly owned subsidiaries to do for-profit fine collection, probation, parole, community corrections, I mean, the tentacles are, are spread. And this is the time to do something about it. Consider the uphill battle Thurgood Marshall had in Brown versus Board of Education. And what I mean by that is, he had to deal with hundreds of years of racism and support for a segregated society and an existing Supreme Court precedent. This industry does not have those deep roots or wide support. This is the time to do something. We've already been through the bank almost failures during the Great Recession and the expression they're too big to fail. Once this industry becomes so prevalent that government is heavily dependent on it, do do members of the judiciary perhaps then lose some perspective on how to address
1: this issue? This is the time to do something about it. And unfortunately, it doesn't take much imagination to imagine a system that is entirely privatized, except maybe a public judge. But science fiction has painted a picture for many years about what a dystopian corporate fascist government could look like. And, you know, every single step along that process may seem normal. But at the end, you have this unrecognizable system. And as John said, it's just so important to stop anything in its track that has this buried-in incentive to grow as large as possible. It's
2: a syndrome of the frog in the boiling water. If you begin to give an inch to the concept that people are commodities, it won't take long before you have authoritarianism.
3: I think there are two rhetorical questions that I come back to. People ask me, why do you think private prisons are unconstitutional? I think the question should be, why do you think they are? The other question I would ask is, hmm, pitting corporate profits against personal liberty, what can possibly go wrong? I think that's left to the imagination.
0: A thought came to mind. You said an interesting way to phrase this would be asking someone what makes you think Private prisons are constitutional. I'd like to see you in that role. What do you think someone would respond to that? Is there anything that they could point to possibly that would make a case?
3: And the Constitution doesn't say anything about this issue, and and so part of our focus, of course, is on the rights of the individual um, and the proper function of government. Um, but the Constitution doesn't say anything about that. The The thing I would point to, if I was arguing the other side, is the courts presume laws that have been passed by legislative bodies to be legal, to be valid. And we have federal laws and laws passed by more than 30 states that authorize the privatization of prison function. So you would start with the assumption that those laws are valid. We would have to challenge them, which is why we're talking about a lawsuit based on the United States Constitution. We're not talking about going state by state under each state's constitution or laws that are lesser than the U.S.
0: Constitution. Thanks for putting that into perspective for us.
2: Well, you've spoken to the clauses of the Constitution that will be the grounds for your case. You're proceeding on litigation on this issue. Uh, has it been precedent that you can look to, you've uh, that will build that you can build your case on?
3: So there is no u s. Supreme Court decision on the issue of prison privatization. This issue will get to the Supreme Court at some point, and in our view, it's it's important to get there sooner rather than later before we become more and more dependent on this industry which is growing like a cancer in our legal system. The Supreme Court of Israel uh, decided that prison privatization violated Israel's basic law, and determined it was a human rights violation to incarcerate people for profit and banned the the practice in Israel. Um, The Jerusalem lawyer um, who handled that case and is working with us, and in fact, has spoken at one of our uh, programs here at ASU's law school um, informed us that the corporate strategy was to establish a footprint in Israel and to use it as a base to expand into other countries in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. So when, when I say this is a cancer and it's spreading, what I mean by that is not only is the private prison industry and immigration detention industry growing in the U.S. It's growing globally, and it's also morphing into for-profit probation, parole, ankle bracelets, bail bonds, community corrections, and selling specialty services to the front end of law enforcement. So this is something that needs to be rooted out now. Unlike the circumstance that confronted Thurgood Marshall and colleagues, in Brown versus Board of Education. We're not battling uphill against existing precedent. That was part of your question. There are several um, circuit court decisions we'll have to address that deal with the issue in dictum initially, and um, but they involve pro se cases where Uh, the incarcerated people have written a sentence or two about the issue of constitutionality. The issue really hasn't been briefed, and I don't think we regard the cases that have been decided as as standing for precedent. Is that a fair statement, Rob, or um, how would you characterize those circuit cases that we found?
1: No, that's right. I, I think it's fair to say that there's been no reasoned opinion that we can find that addresses the issue of private prisons. There are, as John said in dictum, where judges have dealt with procedural issues that sometimes get read in a way uh, to apply to private prisons. But a lot of those predate the private prison industry entirely um, or otherwise skirt around the issue. There's nothing that addresses the substantive issues of the Eighth Amendment, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the non-delegation doctrine. It's a a really fertile ground.
2: So your organization is on the move, Abolish Private Prisons is on the move to prepare, develop litigation. What's your your timeline and have you gotten any
3: support from anybody else? So let me start with the support. So we've received several generous donations that have uh, financed our efforts to spread the word, if you will, for the first couple of years. So we've made presentations at a number of churches, uh, civic organizations, universities um, around the country. And we've done three presentations here at ASU's law school and at, at two at U of A. And are developing a, a base of support among correctional officer unions, church groups, students, faculties, Um, civic organizations, so for example, the Japanese American Citizens League, the NAACP, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, have all passed resolutions calling for abolition of private prisons. Uh, So we've made as many connections as we've been able to make. Um, Secondly, uh, working with people who are incarcerated in private prisons and some of their family members, it's, it's sort of unique, but people who are incarcerated have to first exhaust their administrative remedies under the Prison Litigation Reform Act of 1996, a federal law that was passed to try to lessen the number of, of lawsuits filed by inmates in the federal district courts. Uh, every person we represent has to go through that process and get a final agency decision before we can take that person's case to the courthouse. As we sit here today, we have three uh, people we represent who have completed that process and four others that are in the pipeline, so to speak. One of the things we do is speak to criminal defense lawyers, for example, or immigration rights uh, advocates to let them know we'll accept referrals, to talk to their clients that are also housed in private facilities. Um, And we are on the verge of launching a national internet crowdfunding campaign. Um, And uh, of course, we'll go to all of our friends and supporters and ask them not only to make a donation, but also to spread the word to their 200 best friends.
1: I think, Herb, you mentioned in your intro that it it tends to be groups on the liberal side of the political spectrum that oppose privatization, and I think in general that's true, but we found uh, in the past couple years working with different groups that the issue of prison privatization and mass incarceration generally really has bipartisan, cross-spectrum support from a lot of different groups and a lot of different types of groups. We work closely with faith-based organizations who are concerned about the ability of people in prison to lead a dignified life, for example. We work with libertarian organizations that are concerned about the expansive scope of government and what it looks like mm-hmm. to turn over powers of the government to private individuals. And does that mean a bigger government overall? Uh, we work with progressive groups who are concerned you know, with human rights and human dignity. So, we found, as we've spoken over the past couple years, that it really is not a progressive issue. It's an issue about people that care about the function of government. It's an issue for people who care about humans. Um, so on both moral and legal grounds, there can be common ground
2: on this issue to the point that you may have a high level of confidence that a Supreme Court that is perhaps divided technically between a right wing and a left wing, a conservative and a liberal, that a Supreme Court could actually find common ground on a case like this.
3: Yes, and, and it would be very wise on our part to come to that court with broad-based support, including a Mika's briefing uh, from across the various spectrums.
1: And and really, the cases that we've talked about have primarily been from judges and justices on the right side of the political spectrum who are concerned about broad government power overall. And that reaches back to the New Deal era uh, when they were concerned about freedom. And those opinions form the basis for our legal challenge. And so the current justices and the bench, the federal bench at large, they can approach the issue from a variety of ways. And a lot of those ways are favorable for us.
0: John and Robert, a question came to mind. Who has standing to bring this suit to the Supreme
1: Court? So in the first instance, any prisoner that's housed in a private facility would have standing because they are being directly harmed by the entire industry for all the factors that we mentioned. The lack of access to services, being moved out of state, having a higher chance of recidivism, being forced to take part in a proceeding that isn't fair or isn't seen to be fair. Another uh, avenue that we've been pursuing is taxpayers. And taxpayer standing has been uh, eroded in many ways. But one place that taxpayer standing still is viable is for local municipalities. So John mentioned uh, Mesa is privatizing some of their prison functions. And so our research is still ongoing in this area, but. We're pretty sure that a Mesa taxpayer has standing to challenge at least that particular uh, turning over of their private fun- their prison functions to a private industry.
3: There's there's other circumstances to consider, which might be family members who have a direct stake. So, someone whose father is being transported from Hawaii to Arizona. Um, might have a stake in that there's also the issue of other kinds of organizations Uh, typically what it breaks down to is this um, an organization has standing if it, it has a direct stake in the outcome of the case or it represents its members who have a direct stake in the outcome of the case so for example let's just make up an organization that that represents the interests of Latino women who are in private prisons and their members are the women in private prisons An organization such as that might have standing in federal court as well.
2: When inmates engage in the function of, of participating or, repre- or being represented in a case like what risk do they assume?
3: Now, I would interpret risk, and in, it, it could have different meanings. So to a lawyer, typically you're thinking in terms of, is my client at risk for an award of attorney's fees in favor of the defendants if we lose the case? But since we're talking about prisons, there are other kinds of risks. There's the issue of retaliation. And, and that can be quite serious. And, and by the way, you know, the issue of challenging prison privatization has to be weighed on an individual by individual basis. The grievance that we submit on behalf of each person first states, I should be transferred to a public facility. My incarceration in the private facility is unconstitutional. If you won't do that, then you should release me. There may be individual circumstances for particular individuals where being transferred to another facility is not safe. And and so we always have to take those kinds of things into account as a real risk in deciding whether somebody should be a plaintiff or not. The civil rights laws do not point in the direction of the plaintiffs when it comes to awards of attorney's fees. Unless some court decided our action was frivolous, we're not concerned about that.
2: How can listeners learn more about Abolish Private Prisons?
3: Go to our website, which is www.abolishprivateprisons.org. So we'll have past events and any future events, several articles. I think there might even be another interview up there, some um, discussion of legal interests, and a number of groups, faith-based and secular, that have passed resolutions um, calling for abolition of uh, for-profit incarceration with their rationale. Uh, so that, w- that would be a good place to start.
2: And I assume they'll also find information about your fundraising effort.
3: There's a donate button, too.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Robert and John, is there anything else you'd like to say for the listeners before we sign off?
3: Yeah, there. just two things I want to comment on. Number one... The numbers that I mentioned, you know, less than 10% of, of prisoners are in private facilities. Those numbers can change dramatically in a hurry. As soon as any state legislature decides to turn over its incarceration function to private vendors, at least two state legislatures, including Arizona's, have considered legislation to do that. So that's number one. Number two, the contracts themselves talk about, number one, these are long-term contracts where the government is guaranteeing high occupancy levels. Um, And, um, you know, it's this industry is here to stay unless we do something about it. And while we applaud all the other kinds of efforts, to do something about mass incarceration and prison privatization. We conclude that we have to go to the courthouse. The best example being what happened with the Obama uh, decision not to use private prisons and the next election, reversing that within its first month after being sworn in. So we think we need lasting change by suing under the United States Constitution and getting a constitutional decision. We can read a litany of concerns about the performance of private prisons. There's a 70-page investigative report produced by the Office of Inspector General that, that was the foundation for the Justice Department's decision of August 2016 to announce it was no longer going to use private prisons, but what I would want to make sure anyone understood is we do not propose to bring a comparative case saying that public facilities are better than privates. The public facilities have a host of very serious problems of their own, not the least of which is overcrowding. What we intend to do is is argue that private prisons should not exist at all. You don't even get into the debate of whether public or private is less expensive or of better quality until you first answer the question, are private prisons constitutional at all? In 1986, the American Bar Association developed a resolution that called for a moratorium on prison privatization, which it later adopted through its House of Delegates, in 1990, because of the complex constitutional issues regarding the industry's existence. So, uh, we're not the first ones to raise some concerns about this issue, but I want to make clear, we don't intend a comparative case.
0: Thank you both for joining us here today. I you illuminated this issue for all of us, especially me, because I will be frank and I didn't know much about this topic, but now I do and I appreciate it. And
3: thank you as well.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having us.
3: Thanks for the opportunity.